This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Hip Problems. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Welcome to the first webcast of our season of MedNet 21. I'm Jing Jing Mao, your moderator, and I wanted to take a moment to introduce myself. I am a practicing internal medicine and pediatrics primary care physician at Ohio State University. And in addition to my clinical practice, I also teach medical students, residents, and do research on maternal infant care, plus run a variety of clinic-based quality improvement projects. After watching MedNet for several years and having the fortune of presenting a couple of times, I took over moderating the program permanently in April of 2022. If you're familiar with our program, then you may already recognize some of the changes that we've made this season. We have an updated show open and a brand new set behind me here, but it wouldn't be MedNet if we didn't dive into some history. This CME program started in its first iteration called the Ohio Medical Education Network, or OMEN, in 1962 as an audio broadcast over the radio. 27 years later, the program morphed into a satellite te television program called OMEN TV. And then 20 years ago, OMEN TV evolved again into the program it is today, OSU MedNet 21. The man behind this evolution was Dr. Jim Allen. If you've been a longtime viewer or listener, you may know that Dr. Allen began his long association with the program first as a presenter and then as medical edit editor and moderator in 1998. Throughout his 24-year tenure with the program, he filmed over 860 programs and served as an advisor to OSU's Center for CME. In addition to the 40 programs he moderated each year, he would often provide timely special broadcasts for emerging illnesses such as COVID-19, Zika virus, and Ebola. 
Aside from MedNet, he was also a practicing pulmonary and critical care physician and medical director of OSU East Hospital. He retired from these positions in April of 2021, but despite that, he continued moderating MedNet all on volunteer basis for over a year due to his tireless commitment to continuing medical education and his love for this program. So with that in mind, we wanted to honor his unending devotion to CME. I present today the first annual James N. Allen, MD, Annual Excellence in CME webcast. For today's special webcast tribute, we'll be learning about common hip disorders from two of Ohio State University's sports medicine experts. I am excited to introduce Dr. William Kelton Vasiliff, Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and Hip Preservation Expert, and Dr. Stephanie DeStacy, Associate Professor of Physical Therapy and Sports Medicine Researcher. Kel, Steph, welcome to MedNet. Thank you. Thank you. Kel, I often find that hip doesn't seem to mean the same thing for all my patients. It can really be the groin, the pubic area, the thigh, even the upper back. What are some helpful ways you use to tease out where the real problem area is? So you're very right. A lot of people interpret hip pain as a lot of different things. They can say, as you said, low back pain, gluteal pain, pain on the side of their hip or on the front of the hip. A lot of times really try to get patients to really pinpoint. I tell them just to use one finger to point where it hurts the most for them. Hip joint pain, which we're going to talk about a little bit here later, typically comes from the front of the hip. Perfect. And Steph, what are the most common causes of hip disorders? Is it more due to injury or more due to degeneration? Yeah, that's a great question. I think depending on the age of the individual and how active they are, we tend to see more acute injuries in our younger population and more of the um, long-standing or um, chronic degenerative conditions in our older population. But many of those can sort of cross paths. So we do see a lot of individuals who have had pain for quite a bit of time, many months, sometimes years. Okay, thanks, Steph. We have a great lineup of programs and speakers this season that I'm thrilled to share with you. As a reminder, we will be offering both CME credit and internal medicine maintenance and certification points for watching the program. You can log into our website at ccme.osu.edu for more information. You can also find all 120 of our existing programs there, or if you prefer to listen to our program, you can find the podcast version by searching for MedNet21 CME on your preferred podcast app. Now let's get started and learn about hips. Kel? Thanks, Dr. Mao. So we're gonna talk about hips in a few different ways here. One of the main differentials that we're gonna have here is talk about pain from coming inside the joint or intraarticular as opposed to extraarticular hip pain as well. Intraarticular hip pain can come from a number of different causes, here being femoral acetabular impingement, hip dysplasia, labral tears, arthritis, as well as a number of different causes here noted as well. So, and as I suggested earlier, those, we try to really localize where that pain is coming from, either from the front, the side, or the back. So this anterior hip pain, we think about sometimes as adductor injuries, sports hernia, which we'll also call core muscle injuries, which is one of those things you see on ESPN all the time. Osteitis pubis, and some of our athletes that we have, snapping hip, which is very common in a lot of dancers, and other high flexibility type uh, athletes that we have, stress fractures, hip flexors and rectus injuries, uh, and uncommonly, but sometimes in our more younger, more kind of transitional adolescent folks can get some uh, sartorius or other avulsion fracture injuries around the pelvis. Lateral hip pain, uh, greater trochanteric pain syndrome is sort of our bucket term for pain coming from the IT band, trochanteric bursitis as well as gluteal tendinopathy and gluteal tendon tears. 
piriformis pain can also sometimes be felt more on the side of the hip as well. And a lot of patients uh, can kind of confuse this lateral pain. They'll say, yeah, it hurts in the side of my hip, but it's really deep down on the side. And that's one of the ways we try to differentiate between intraarticular as well as extraarticular hip pain. Sometimes this uh, intraarticular pain can be felt more on the side, but it's really deep down, not really superficially. And then posterior hip pain, intraarticular pain, we say patients a lot of times will make a C sign with their hand and then they'll grab their hip and sometimes that posterior portion of that, uh, what they indicate can be that intraarticular pain. Hamstrings can cause difficulty. Gluteal muscles is a very common thing that we see, piriformis pain, uh, sacroiliac joint pain, uh, and then lateral fatigue, which is more related to weakness of the muscles in those gluteal areas. And then sciatic and radicular pain is a relatively common thing that we see in our offices as well, where patients feel pain kind of radiating from the back part of their buttock area and then down the back of their leg as well. Things that radiate down further down to the back of the leg, the back of the knee, into the calf and the foot typically doesn't come from the hip joint or anything around the hip. That tends to be a more uh, nerve-related impingement as well. So there's a lot of other things that we have to differentiate between hip pain uh, and there's a lot of things that can hurt inside your pelvis, uh, OBGYN type problems, urologic issues, hernias, which is a pretty common referral that we make to our hernia repair team, GI issues, and then as I suggested before, lumbar radiculopathy and radiating pain down the leg is a pretty common thing that we see. And these are all things that we have to be very careful with our patients to differentiate between these different causes and be very specific with our history taking as well as our physical exam for those folks. So where does this hip pain from? And then as this kind of diagram suggests, there's a lot of different places where this, you know, people can feel pain around their pelvis or hip injuries, intraarticular, extraarticular injuries, younger patients, older patients, and it's really multifactorial. And what I tell a lot of patients is we really have to put the puzzle pieces together for these folks. A lot of x-rays can look very similar. A lot of history presentations can look very similar. MRIs can even be, you know, can show a lot of things that may or may not be clinically relevant. So we really have to put those puzzle pieces together, kind of as what I tell people is that history, physical exam, imaging, all those different things here really have to kind of line up to give us more of a really clear clinical picture of what's going on. So for a little focus on femoral acetabular impingement, this is a very common clinical issue that we see here. Um, this is a combination of some dynamic and static forces that really impact how this hip joint moves. It creates really a conflict between the femoral head and neck as well as the acetabular area and causes damage to the labral, acetabular labrum in your hip as well, as well as some chondral injuries. If this progresses and goes on over time, that can cause some really significant and severe degenerative changes and can lead to arthritis over time as well. So a cam lesion is more of a femoral-based issue, and I'm going to show you some pictures here in just a second here. But this is a loss of the offset of the head-neck area and where the ball of that ball and socket really isn't round. You can see this in a lot of different patients, but you know historically we think of this as being more common in younger athletic males. Um, and tends to be mostly problematic in a flexion and internal uh, rotation type maneuver. So as you see on this picture here, the AP x-ray on the right and then the x-ray on the right there is what we call a 45-degree done lateral. So it's sort of a modified lateral view. And it really shows you the more anterior lateral portion of that head and neck area. And you can see how the more posterior inferior portion of the ball looks like a nice round ball. And you can see where the top part of that just looks flat and full, like there's no offset and there's no you know, gap there. And you can imagine how when that, you know, if you've got your socket here, you've got your ball here, and if that ball isn't round, and you can imagine how that might create a conflict uh, in the hip, and that can cause damage in the hip joint to the labrum and the cartilage. 
So a pincer lesion is kind of the, uh, I wouldn't say the opposite, but more of an acetabular based issue where there's some pinching from the pelvis side of the hip, uh, and that can cause damage, again, to the labrum and to the damage to the cartilage, but from a slightly different uh, contact point. And you see here on these x-rays, again, the AP on the left, more of a frog lateral view on the right side. You can see where that hip in that AP x-ray, the acetabulum really covers more than the entire femoral head. And you can imagine how when the people bring that hip up into a flexed or internal rotated position, there's not really space for that femoral head and neck to move. And then that socket can pinch onto the head and neck area of the ball. So we're going to shift here just a little bit and talk about acetabular dysplasia and ligamentous laxity. So there's a lot of different things that kind of go into this area. There's some patients that are just a bit more flexible, that are just a little bit more ligamentously lax, and that's a pretty common thing that we see. Uh, Baton score is something that can indicate based on uh, people, you know, they're able to pull their thumb back to their forearm, pull their fingers back beyond full extension, elbows and knees that hyperextend, or people that are very easily able to put their palms flat on the ground. And that can give you an idea of how they're generally uh, globally lax. Uh, bony structure, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute here. And then some people have really true systemic disorders like Ehlers-Danlos. Uh, some people, uh, Ehlers-Danlos can be a very hard thing to really accurately, truly diagnose. Some people are just very flexible. Um, we try to engage our genetics uh, partners when able in these situations uh, to be helpful with that and more concrete diagnoses. Um, this dysplasia and some of this ligamentous laxity creates some micro instability of the hip is kind of the more current understanding of this and this basically just means that the ball is moving more than it should in socket. There is some normal physiologic movement uh, of that uh, ball and socket within the joint here. Um, and these folks that are more ligamentously lax, there's more movement than there should be and that puts additional stresses on the cartilage and the labrum and the hip joint which can lead to degenerative changes over time. So here you see this is a 35-year-old female, obviously you see some fibroids in there, but what you also note in these x-rays is the pretty steep uh, angle between the femoral shaft and the neck, and you can see where the femoral head is significantly above the tip of the trade or trochanter there, and that's one of these kind of telltale signs of folks that are dysplastic, and you also see the shallowness of the socket and where the socket on both of her hips there is really upturned and doesn't really cover nearly as much of the femoral head as we saw in some of those other earlier x-rays. And you can imagine if you've got somebody that really just doesn't have as much structural bony anatomic stability of their hip, and that puts a lot more stress on the soft tissues, the muscles, the ligaments, everything like that around their hip as well. So shifting a little bit to arthritis, so osteoarthritis in contrast to rheumatoid arthritis or other kind of autoimmune injuries is really just, you know, regular arthritis, if you will, wear and tear. This uh, comes from accumulated degenerative changes over time. The cartilage gets thin. Um, sometimes this can be either, you know, over larger traumatic injuries or some kind of micro traumatic injuries over time or even an injury a long time ago that seemed like it caused a little bit of pain but may have injured the cartilage at the time uh, in that joint maybe 20 years ago but cartilage really has a hard time healing and so that may have just led to this slow progressive degenerative cascade of that joint and again family history is pretty common in arthritis so i tell my patients when i see them in the office just to say thanks mom and dad for that hip replacement if they ever need that so uh, some of the really telltale radiographic signs this is what we teach our residents for really key things for arthritis joint space loss, which we see best on standing radiographs. Occasionally, sometimes supine, non-loaded radiographs can hide some more significant degenerative changes. 
osteophytes, which is bone spurs that you can see on the femoral head or the acetabulum, subchondral cysts on the acetabular or femoral head side, and subchondral sclerosis, which is a density and hardening of the bone around the hip joint that's in reaction to the thinning of the cartilage as well. So this x-ray, what you see here on the uh, AP pelvis on the right side there, you see more significant degenerative changes and arthritic changes in the right hip for this, this is the left side there. The left side still has just a real little bit of joint space loss, but the right side you see some significant remodeling in the femoral head as well as the acetabulum that really increased density white, which you see on the acetabulum on both sides is that subchondral sclerosis. And you can see significant uh, subchondral cyst formation that loosened area, that more clear area, where almost looks like bubbles, if you will, on the femoral head as well as the acetabulum on both of those hips as well. So this is a patient with really significant arthritis in both of their hips, with the right side being more significant than the left. And you can see how it's almost wearing out and remodeling the acetabulum there. So in any of these issues that we're talking about, history and physical is really the most important thing that we talk about. History, is this an acute or chronic injury? You know, as you suggested, and we talked about with Dr. DeStacy earlier, where's the location of that pain? Is it in the front, side, back, uh, the hip? Where does it radiate to? You know, how old is the patient? What kind of demographic category do they fit in? Do they have a family history of rheumatoid arthritis? Did mom and dad both get hip replacements in their 40s or something like that, right? What kind of activities really make that worse? Do they have any history of trauma? And do they have uh, mechanical symptoms in that hip either? Is it catching, is it locking, is it giving way on them? Because those can be helpful in terms of understanding really the severity of the problem for them and where that pain is coming from as well. So as I said before, this is sort of that C sign where patients will make that C you know, shape with their hand and grab their hip. And this is really indicative of intraarticular hip pain which sometimes you have to be careful about uh, differentiating that between lateral hip pain as well. Um, starting off with a very basic physical exam, how do they walk, what is their gait pattern? Um, Dr. DeStacy is going to talk about that a bit later too. What's their active and passive range of motion? Do they have appropriate strength of those pelvic muscles in their abductors? And then this flexion, abduction, external rotation can really indicate some intraarticular pain, as can this what we call the impingement sign, which is a forced flexion in internal rotated position, which really brings that femoral head and neck area into an area of conflict with the acetabulum, which can reproduce significant intraarticular hip pain. Um, this is, helps us differentiate between pelvis, lumbar, you know, and radiating pain down the leg. Is there snapping? There's a couple different kinds of snapping hip and anterior, which is an internal snapping hip versus a lateral, which is a greater choke, uh, IT band snapping as well. Is the hip range of motion symmetric? Are these provocative tests positive? Is there significant muscle weakness and dysfunction? And is that in specific areas as well? So imaging, x-rays, plain radiographs is really the first thing that we do. Typically, that's when our first uh, evaluation with the patients as well. Uh, MRIs can be a good adjunctive kind of advanced imaging as a next step there too. Typically, we proceed with that uh, usually after we've attempted some kind of um, non-certain or other conservative management, whether it's physical therapy, conserv uh, scheduled anti-inflammatory medications, rest, uh, not playing sports anymore, taking some time off running, whatever that is. And CT scan is something that we typically employ when we're planning uh, reconstruction uh, and surgery for to really get a better three-dimensional idea of what the anatomy of the hip looks like. There's a number of different views that we get, usually AP pelvis, some kind of a lateral view. There's different options you have through there too. And a false profile view, which is a weight-bearing view, which we can look at the anterior point of the joint and really can show us sometimes that uh, joint space narrowing that gets more hidden with some of the other radiographs. 
So these, again, can show us some arthritis, can show us dysplasia, is there impingement, and are there acute fractures that we see on this as well? And just a couple of those different pictures, which you see on the bottom left, which is an over-covered pincer-type hip, middle one, kind of an appropriate amount of acetabular coverage. Uh, and then the right picture, you can see the obvious shallowness and starting to escape uh, area of that dysplastic hip on that far right. So this is a patient that had avascular necrosis, which is a topic that we're not going to talk about a little lot today, but where the blood supply to the femoral head gets disrupted and then the acetabular, sorry, the femoral head bone dies, the cartilage collapses, and once that happens, it begins this really secondary degenerative arthritic cascade. So MRI can show us early stage avascular necrosis that might be radiographically occult, can show us stress fractures and stress reactions. Uh, a lot of times the MRIs to rule out bad things that are going on too. And occasionally we'll see things on MRIs, whether that's uh, nerve sheath tumors, some of these other pelvic issues that we uh, can identify as well, uh, which can lead us down a different pathway. Uh, bone cysts, paralabral cysts can identify an MRI. And then it also shows us the soft tissue issues, muscle, tendon injuries, cartilage, labrum tears, ligamentous tear, these injuries as well. And just a couple quick pictures of a, MRI here on that left picture, you can see that arrow pointing to a labrum with a labral tear. This is an MRI arthrogram, which is why that joint looks so blown up and white on this, which is not something that we typically get at this point in time unless we're in a revision type situation. And then those other pictures there are just indicating whether you're in your coronal and your sagittal views, uh, showing us where that labral tear can be indicated on an MRI as well. Typically, you see that more in the anterior superior portion of the joint. So CT scans, we can do three-dimensional reconstructions with this, can show us dysplasia, can show us acetabular, but also helps us assess the acetabular orientation inversion as well as the femoral version as well. It's a pretty minimally, we have a low-dose CT protocol that we use that's equivalent about three radiographs, um, so it's relatively low, but a non-zero. Um, and occasionally uh, there is some research into doing uh, what they call position of discomfort scans as well. So there's just a quick picture here, that CT scan you see on the left side shows a significant amount of heterotopic ossification on the outside part of that left tip there. And then the right side, you can see that cam lesion where that anterior port, uh, part of that femoral head and neck really is just flat and full. And you can kind of see that appropriate posterior femoral contour as well. So non-operative, really a mainstay of our in initial treatment algorithm activity modification, whether that's some ambulation assistance as well, scheduled anti-inflammatories, intra-articular injections we commonly do for diagnostic as well as therapeutic purposes, some over, over kind of medications as well, glucosamine chondroitin can sometimes help some patients, and then physical therapy is a pretty key part of what we do consistently as well. Um, I'm gonna leave a lot of the highlights of this to the physical therapy to Dr. DeStacy here, but we talk about physical therapy injections for really kind of confirmatory patient uh, purposes to help us say, yes, the, if we do an injection to the hip joint, this helps them even if for a short period of time with that anesthetic phase of the injection, does that help your pain? That helps us confirm where that hip's coming from. Um, there's not a lot of great data either way to support, you know, especially injections. Sometimes they can help, sometimes they might not. Um, there is some decent evidence that if injections do help, it's a positive prognostic indicator that surgery would help them as well. There is more data recently that there is reason and there's a decent number of patients that do get better with physical therapy and don't need to do surgery, which patients ask us pretty regularly as well. Um, so I do think physical therapy certainly has value in this situation. 
So we really try to uh, tailor the surgical treatment for each patient based on their specific anatomic pattern, looking at their acetabular uh, orientation, how deep, how shallow, how tilted towards the front or the back they are, what does that femoral uh, anatomy look like as well. I'm really trying to reconstruct and kind of rebuild that joint as best we can to reshape it to relieve their pain, improve the function, and get them back to doing what they want to do. And then the last thing in terms of what we do in terms of a hip preservation is really trying to prevent future generation of the joint and need for hip arthroplasty if we're able to. So our surgical hip dislocation, uh, something that we don't do a whole lot of now, but it's an open procedure that we're able to really visualize that femoral head and a joint in a really comprehensive fashion and can do a lot of different things uh, when indicated. I think the indications for uh, that have fallen down, you know, a bit, certainly in the last five to 10 years. PAO, periacetabular osteotomy, for patients that are dysplastic, um, we're doing more and more of these, I think, as we recognize instability and micro-instability in a lot of patients' hips as being a significant factor and contributing factor to their pain. Um, and we're doing this more and more in conjunction with hip arthroscopy as well to really com uh, comprehensively address the intraarticular pathology as well as to correct their bony structure. So arthroscopic treatment, hip scope, you know, labral repair surgery, these indications really continue to evolve. Um, we can assess a lot of different pathology within the joint, reshape the socket, reshape the ball. Uh, in a lot of different ways. There are some limitations to what we can address there, um, but we can do pretty significant capsular repairs, capsular augmentations, uh, and labral repairs and reconstructions when indicated as well. So one of the things we'll talk about just a little bit and share decision-making is something that we've done some research into uh, together as well. And we really try to engage our patients, our surgeons, our non-surgeon sports med partners, our physical therapists to really look at specific patient situations, look at their anatomy, look at their muscular structure, their balance, their strength, things like that, to really kind of make a uh, decision along with the patients in terms of what at different stages in their care is the best next steps for them. So hip arthroplasty, we'll talk about real quickly here for arthritis. It's a very reliably reproducible results. We tell patients it's the best surgery that we do. Uh, I think it was the Lancet called it the, the surgery of the century, I think, just in terms of how much better patients get, how successful it is, how quickly patients do get better. Um, it's a really a great option for patients that are really appropriately indicated. Those are patients I tell people it's a quality of life decision. When they get to a point where they've tried physical therapy, they've tried medications, they've done injections, they've, you know, they're not walking as much, they're not walking their dogs as much, they're not doing tennis or pickleball, whatever that is, really then I think that's an appropriate discussion with those patients about arthroplasty at that point in time. Arthroscopy outcomes have gotten significantly better in the last five to 10 years, and we've really started to learn some of more of our limitations in terms of who we should not be operating on in terms of some of those early degenerative changes. We've found out really any patients that we're with really any significant cartilage damage and they're starting to get some arthritis, we can make those patients a little bit better, but there are certainly some limitations and concerns that, that those degenerative process will continue to progress despite if we tried any preservation type surgeries. Greater trochanteric pain syndrome is something we talk about a lot, and I'm gonna leave a little bit of this to, again, Dr. DeStacy here, but very common lateral-sided complaints of patients. This is, you know, this can go across a number of patient demographic groups, but really the most common is to kind of middle-aged to later, um, significantly more women than men, but we do have some men that have this trochanteric bursitis, gluteotendinopathy and tears, and IT band pain. Uh, patients, again, will complain of lateral-sided issues. A lot of times they'll say it really hurts them to lay on that side of the night or they can lay on it for a few minutes, then got to flip over to the other side. and gets worse with uh, prolonged standing as well. 
a lot of times our plane radiographs are normal in this situation. Uh, sometimes you can see some enthesophytes, which are kind of little bone spurs indicating uh, chronic uh, gluteal tendon issues on your plane x-rays. Physical exam is really the key for what we're looking at here. It's pain with lateral palpation over the greater trochanter, over those gluteal muscles when that gluteal tendons were attached to the trochanter. Pain with range of motion, especially their external rotation and that abduction and uh, external rotation in a flexion position. Uh, they can have some weakness and pain with resisted abduction when the patients are lying on their side as well. And then if they're trying to do a single leg stance, that can be painful or they're unable to really hold their pelvis label level as well. Um, Non-op treatment, really the core of what we do here, physical therapy, home exercises, postural training, tending load loading modification programs, corticosteroid injections, platelet-rich plasma injections, which is uh, really decent evidence that is, uh, it's a pretty effective treatment for these patients with gluteal tendinopathy. 10X, which is a slightly more invasive uh, endocorporeal shock wave therapy, which we use in the office as well. And then surgery, we have some options in terms of uh, mini open versus arthroscopic approaches. A lot of times we'll do a small IT band windowing in this situation and remove the ear inflamed bursa as well. So just a couple different MRI pictures you have here. This is a patient, these are three different MRI slices. You can see a significantly inflamed bursa, a lot of fluid in the lateral side of the hip, a lot of edema, and that far right picture, you can see a discontinuity of that gluteus medius tendon where it should be attaching to the greater trochanter. And this is a patient that was indicated for surgery and did well after repair for gluteal tendons. This is a patient who had a much more uh, undersurface kind of tear of her gluteus tendons, not a full thickness retraction, still had a little bit of pain with her bursa. She was treated with a 10X uh, outpatient procedure and did well with that as well. So just a couple little things here. We talked about FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, really the most common indication for hip preservation procedures, hip arthroscopy and labral repairs. Total hip for hip arthritis is a very commonly performed procedure with really good long-term consistent outcomes. In gluteal tendon pathology, treatment is really patient-specific. A lot of different treatment options that we have here, um, but really we start off with a lot of conservative management, especially for gluteal tendinopathy, but for a lot of these uh, different clinical pathologies that we see. So thanks much. I'm gonna hand off to Dr. DeStacy here. Thanks, Dr. Vasilev. So I'm a, a physical therapist and a, a biomechanist. So um, in physical therapy, you know, one of the things that we really focus on is movement, quality of movement. And a lot of what we gear our interventions towards are optimizing movement so that we can Im improve people's quality of life. And when you think about typical therapy um, interventions, you think about strength training and movements to improve flexibility and movements to improve um, joint range of motion. Um, and all of these contribute to movement quality, but they're not the whole picture. Um, so when we assess people in the clinic um, differently than, than maybe surgeons or um, other physicians would evaluate patients, we are really homing in on movement quality because we know this introduces load to the entire body system and that introduces tissue-specific stress and strain. So when we're considering things like um, hip conditions, hip pathology, we are very conscientious of the load placed on those tissues. And if these loads are out of balance um, for a long period of time, um, they can introduce pain and pain further disrupts movement quality. So you can, we can kind of see how that, that cycle would continue. And between the sort of movement quality space and load to the system, if we intervene specifically on movement-based interventions, not just strength, not just range of motion and flexibility, but specifically direct our treatment to enhance movement quality, 
we can alter load to the system, we can enhance the responsiveness and adaptation of those um, tissues and thereby reduce pain and improve movement quality. So we, we know that physical therapy can um, address impaired movement and we can do this in just a few sessions. And I think, you know, Dr. Vasilev brought up a couple of um, clinical situations where movement was really effective um, in sort of reducing the initial um, pain experience. And that's a great way to um, introduce your, your patients to a, a therapy that, that might actually work and help them avoid surgery. So I wanna focus first on greater trochanteric pain syndrome because this is something that you would see quite often in clinic in physical therapy practice. We see it, surgeons see it in office, primary care physicians see it, and these folks are sort of the hallmark model for disrupted movement. Um, primarily, we're talking about um, issues related to gluteal tendinopathy or the tendon itself, the muscular tendon disjunction, less so bursitis, um, as we see in the literature, and sometimes gluteal tears. Um, and they have some overlap with individuals who have osteoarthritis. So these tend to be your middle and older adults. Uh, they often have pain patterns that uh, seem very similar. And so there's some distinguishing features that I think are worth mentioning. And in particular, we focus on these things in, in PT practice as well. So, you know, top of the list here in this table is range of motion. You know, in someone with GTPS, they might have a lot of pain, but their motion is often minimally lim limited. And if it is limited, it's really due to pain. The joint feels mobile, um, flexibility is an issue. These are sometimes even like your Gumby type patients, uh, very, very flexible. Whereas someone with osteoarthritis is that sort of classic stiff hip, very limited mobility. Um, we do things in therapy that are assessing, obviously, muscle function. One of the ways we do that is to have somebody stand on a single leg. Now, both um, conditions can elicit pain, but in this particular situation, those with GTPS have a classic lateral referral to their pain, whereas someone with, with OA might more so complain of that C sign pain or, or um, joint pain. In terms of getting their shoes and socks on and off, someone with OA is gonna have a lot of difficulty with this, very limited motion. They'll contort themselves basically to get the shoe on. These are folks that are using the shoehorn um, to help them get their shoes and socks on. Someone with GTPS, it might be painful, but they have no difficulty whatsoever. Um, and then the last row here, we have a focus on gait mechanics. And you know this, this isn't um, meant to fully characterize each um, particular group and say there isn't some overlap. But what we tend to see in those with GTPS is that they have more hip adduction and more internal rotation motion. So it's that uh, movement of the femur relative to pelvis more in line, maybe a knock-kneed position, you might say. They also tend to have larger hip extension and adduction moments. Moments are basically representative of the external load on the hip joint. And so again, this is, they often pull their leg very far back behind them, their femur far back behind them, or the femur tends to cave towards midline. And when we think about individuals with OA, we might have seen these individuals walking around the block. They have two sort of classic uh, gait features. One is to lean forward because they lose hip extension quite quickly. So leaning forward alleviates that, um, that joint pressure. They often have weakness. So sometimes you'll see individuals lean laterally over the ipsilateral hip. Um, to reduce the external loads um, to that failing joint. And I do have some videos of that to demonstrate that in a little bit. I wanted to um, kind of highlight some of the load modification and adaptation strategies that we use for individuals with a greater trochanteric pain syndrome. Um, as Dr. Veseleff mentioned, PT is sort of the first 
um, line of treatment for these individuals. And we review these pictures um, and assess these movements with our, our patients routinely because what we often hear from them is they have problems exactly with these tasks. So in the top right hand corner, you see the picture of the individual lying on their side. As Dr. Veseleff mentioned, lying on that painful side can be uncomfortable, but we also have individuals reporting that the top hip is the uncomfortable hip. And that's because, as noted in these red lines, the, the femur is in relative adduction um, to the pelvis. And if you can imagine sleeping like that for six or eight hours, this introduces incredible compressive um, and tensile stresses on the hip. Um, in the left-hand picture, you see some of the common uh, gait adaptations or single limb standing adaptations in the presence of hip abduction weakness, which is very common in these individuals. They often have a contralateral pelvic drop where that is in this individual, she's standing on her left side, but the right pelvis, the right side of the pelvis is dropping down. This is a, a sort of hallmark sign of hip abductor dysfunction. And then in that right-hand picture, she's leaning over the hip, again, trying to reduce those external loads um, to maintain balance. And then that central and bottom picture is a really good example of some gait correction that we would do with these individuals, trying to keep the pelvis level, um, trying to keep the feet slightly, um, you know, hip width apart uh, to reduce those compressive plus tensile loads together. Those are really the injurious loads we, we consider and, and think uh, quite a bit about when we're introducing movement training. Um, here is another example of some of the starter exercises we give individuals. You cannot address hip abductor weakness and gluteal tendon dysfunction without strengthening, and we do this in a combination of ways from isometrics um, to isotonics. And so squatting is very functional, and by adding the band uh, around the distal femur in the right-hand picture here, this is one way we can get individuals to start to introduce safe amount of loads to restore um, function to the musculotendinous unit. Here's another more advanced exercise. We do some sidestepping. This is very specific to hip abductor muscle dysfunction. It can induce some discomfort, and I'll talk a little bit about some guidelines for um, providing these exercises to individuals. But you'll notice in that right-hand side, um, her legs never cross midline, right? So they never come into hip adduction. Those are the high compressive load positions. And so we really encourage people to take those wide steps uh, to avoid that compression. So um, I'm gonna to start to talk a little bit more about joint pain. We just kind of touched on the extraarticular hip conditions, but joint pain is a lot of what we see in our, in our practice. And stiff joints are often painful joints. Um, we know that manual therapy and low load duration, long duration stretching can be very helpful. Um, but we also wanna help our patients take that new motion they earn in physical therapy into uh, their real world living. So really encouraging people to use the available range of motion they have. Um, and stiff joints not only are painful joints, but they're unhealthy joints. So we focus a lot on physical therapy and making sure that we restore as much mobility um, to that painful hip as possible. We also know that exercise is, has an anti-nociceptive effect. Um, it's good for you, especially in people with um, osteoarthritis, early to moderate osteoarthritis tend to do very, very well. Um, with uh, the right amount of exercise, and we really try to titrate uh, our exercises and make it individual specific, make sure that we have their sort of exercise goals in mind and interests in mind. And then we talked uh, a lot before with GTPS about strengthening. This absolutely has um, application here. We optimize strength and joint loading because we know good muscle performance it contributes to a healthy joint. We do things like balance training and proprioceptive training. Um, we make sure we modify the range of motion to minimize the joint pain where needed. 
um, and make sure that we're, we're paying attention to how the joint responds in the 24 to 48 hours um, thereafter. So I'd like to review some pain monitoring strategies. And, and again, this is for um, therapists and primary care physicians when they ask their patients how um, folks are responding to therapy. A lot of what we do is say, is it better, worse, or the same? This is a great way for us to understand what type of rehabilitation adjustments we need. So in someone with tendinopathy or GTPS, getting that um, immediate pain response is really clarifying to how we um, titrate the exercises going forward. That second bullet point there, um, the idea of don't go above X out of 10 pain. We don't anticipate that physical therapy is pain-free, although we know patients would prefer it that way. Um, some discomfort in tendon healing basically ensures that you're giving appropriate load, and that's very, very important when trying to rehabilitate um, a deficient musculotendinous unit. Um, and then we apply these soreness rules, you know, 24 to 48 hours. Um, they shouldn't be so debilitated and so painful that they cannot engage in their next treatment session. So really finding that happy medium of giving the muscle, um, uh, is giving the muscle enough load so that it's sore, um, but that it doesn't disrupt uh, what they're trying to do in the subsequent therapy sessions. Okay, so um, Dr. Vasilev talked a bit about this and how abnormal joint shape, something like uh, femoral tabular impingement, um, can be very disruptive to someone's quality of life. It, we know that it alters joint contact area. We know it disrupts the tissue um, and can um, put people on a, a degenerative cascade to early hip osteoarthritis. So we pay a lot of attention um, to how we can modulate load um, from the physical therapy perspective. So I give this example first. We have lots of young adults um, who have hips that are behaving like our early arthritic hips, and we review and assess the common postures they adopt. And we know that prone lying um, for prolonged periods can actually increase stress to the hip. This is because there is relative femur extension to the pelvis. And they do this innocuously. They don't realize they're doing it. They might be doing, you know, sort of homework or uh, watching TV or something like that. Um, so the first thing we do is address this posture and tell them, please don't do this anymore. <laughs> this is not the way to treat your hip, especially when it's um, uncomfortable. Here are some other examples of the things we make note of in physical therapy. All of these postures and stretches, you can see really increased relative hip extension. Note the vertical diagonal line, that's sort of the midline of her torso and the midline of her femur. And if we see any relative um, extension position of the hip, we do try to adjust um, these exercises to make sure that they're getting healthy hip extension and not putting increased stress um, on their joint. This is a great tool that we use, um, particularly in, in physical therapy practice. I wanna bring in these animations here first. We use axial load, which is just pressure down on the shoulder um, to help people understand how their weight is positioned over their hips. This backward posterior trunk lean is something we find quite a bit, and it actually introduces a ton of load into the um, anterior portion of the hip because it introduces this posterior or sort of backward moment, hip flexors, um, abdominal musculature has to do a lot of work um, to maintain these postures, and it does increase load to the anterior superior joint surface. So we see that kind of pelvis sliding forward in space. And the correction is really just to say to patients, you know, position your shoulders directly above your hips or lean forward slightly over your toes. And we do find that within a session, as soon as we make this postural correction, not only do they demonstrate better postural um, sort of awareness in our mind, but some of them even have an immediate pain reduction. So this is a great way to try to make, um, take action on pain uh, within a session. Here's good standing posture. Again, you think about sort of the vertical lines of the plumb line of the body and, and the horizontal line across the pelvis. This is what we're looking for. We expect a little bit of an anterior tilt. We don't want to flatten that out because that affects spine. 
Here are some problematic sideline postures we alluded to with the GTPS picture in the first part of the um, slide deck here where this individual is lying on their side. Lots of compression plus tension is bad news for um, a cranky musculotendinous unit. Um, and so what we offer to patients is, hey, just double up a pillow, put these between your knees. Notice here that the knee is in plane with or above the hip, and that really does reduce the load to those extra articular structures. It's also very helpful with individuals who have hip OA, who don't like to have their um, limb across their body because they don't have that available motion. So, so this is a great thing to provide your patients right off the bat to see if it helps. I want to move into some videos highlighting some of the changes in quality of movement that we like to make. And I, I use anterior hip pain and, and some of the um, adjustments we make to anterior hip pain during walking because we, we do see a lot of this in clinical practice. And so here's a video um, of a person walking. You have a nice sagittal plane view. And what you should notice about um, this individual is that they have a pretty substantial posterior lean to their gait and the relative hip extension it introduces is quite large. Most people have you know, eight, maybe 10 degrees of hip extension during gait. This person's probably going through about 15 degrees. Lots of load um, to the front of the hip, again, on the flexors, on the anterior joint surface. And if you consider this as someone who already has joint pain, chondrolabral delamination, the cam morphology, um, this is a problematic posture. So I want to show you guys what this looks like in a very simple schematic form. Um, we, these are three sort of common postures we see. On the left, we have a sway back posture, that sort of posterior lean you just saw in the video. We have a neutral posture, which is the preferred posture, if you will, and then a forward flex posture. Um, center of mass is a focal point for us because we know that the ground reaction force points at the center of mass in each of these situations, and that, that's basically what predicts um, how the hip joint is loaded. So in the first um, uh, picture on the left there in the sway back, the ground reaction force being posterior to the hip, that means the muscular, the tendinous, the ligamentous load is anterior. This is sort of the less ideal position. Um, in a typical position in the center there, the ground reaction force is slightly posterior to the hip, um, which would be considered normal or acceptable. And in someone with hip pain, what we do try to do is encourage them to lean forward so that the ground reaction force is through the hip joint um, so that they can reduce the load on those um, painful anterior structures. So, you know, when we think about why gait quality matters for those with hip joint pain, um, we build on a lot of work done in healthy controls. And so on the left side of this table, you'll note the things that we've identified in the literature as being sort of um, typical of, of individuals without any hip pain. We see that muscle weakness is a problem even for individuals without any hip pain. It increases the force distributed to the anterior joint, um, again, whether or not they have hip pain. We know that increased end range hip extension, much like you saw in the video, that sort of overextended posture also increases pain. Many of these individuals have both conditions, so they have too much extension uh, and they have muscle weakness. So you can imagine how that refers pain to the anterior surface of the hip. One of the things we do for these individuals is, um, or we've seen from healthy controls, is that if we ask them to push more with their ankle, um, do more with their ankle, emphasize the push-off, we can actually reduce the calculated load to the hip. And we think this has applicability, great applicability to individuals with hip pain um, because we tend to see those kinematic features, the hip extension impairments, the, the flexor and gluteal weakness. And so this is a source um, of uh, interest for a lot of researchers in this space to try to test the, the, um, the effects of these gait modifications. So I wanna share some videos with you of good movement and disrupted movement. Here is a video um, of someone going from a sitting to a standing position. 
Obviously, this is very functional. It's something we do quite a bit during the day. Notice that the movement should be primarily sagittal. So if you observe your patients in clinic um, standing up, all of this movement should be you know, sort of sagittal plane. You shouldn't see a knock-kneed position. Um, you should see slight trunk flexion and no prominent weight shift. Well, let's take a look at someone who might have hip abductor muscle dysfunction or, or muscle weakness. This is pretty common from a posterior view to see someone laterally lean over the painful hip. This is sort of that um, classic uh, manifestation of hip abductor weakness. Again, if we see this person coming from the front, see a really nice exaggerated trunk lean. Notice how that pushes the center of mass over that painful leg. That is the trick to reducing load. So people will adapt this over time. This is not a, a desired compensatory strategy we want people to maintain um, because it further weakens the hip and, and reduces support there. So we pay a lot of attention to um, altering the gait training there. Let's take a look at some stair climbing. So this is stair ascent with good mechanics. Again, this should be primarily sagittal plane, the hips, the knees, the ankles, everything should be moving in a straight line forward to back. Stair climbing descent now. Similarly, the knees are pointing straight ahead. There's equal weight bearing. Again, anywhere in clinic, if you can't, don't have stairs, you can replicate this on some steps. This is a great way to see where the muscle dysfunction is and where, things sh where your treatment should be targeted. If you notice here, and we're asking this, this healthy person to exaggerate these movement patterns, but notice the knee caving in towards midline. Um, this is a function of, hip, it can be a function of hip adductor weakness. It can also be a function of the fact that they don't know how to move well. And so when someone presents with lateral hip pain, we really focus on movement quality and getting them to move in that sagittal plane to reduce the load to the external hip and to the hip joint itself. Here they are again, climbing down the stairs with poor mechanics. Anybody with weakness in the hip or the knees is gonna struggle with stair descent. Uh, in someone with hip pain, this often manifests as femoral adduction and internal rotation, which you can see quite well there on the left-hand side. They're also leaning away uh, from that leg. So if you imagine that left hip is the painful hip, she's really avoiding getting her weight up over that leg. And so you see a bit of a lateral right trunk lean there. And so I just highlight my references here and um, you know, just emphasize that movement and posture is really um, a tried and true physical therapy approach. And, and this is how we work with our physician colleagues um, to kind of collectively manage individuals with hip pain. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, now, you know, it sounds like my mom was right. Posture and position really are important. <laughs> That's right. So I know in your talk, you were discussing mostly patients with hip problems, hip pain, and using posture and position to correct that. But mm -hmm. are these applicable to all patients? Should we be advising this, especially if they have family history of osteoarthritis to prevent degeneration? Yes, that's a great question. You know, there isn't a lot of good literature to say that addressing posture and movement is OA preventive, but certainly if you believe in the mechanics um, related to degenerative disease processes and really optimizing movement to optimizing quality of life, we always advocate for people to enhance their posture and movement quality, and that's why we think PT is a really important um, intervention approach for anybody who has hip pain. Okay, perfect. And then Cal, I know this is kind of a broad question, but with hip disorders, you know, it sounds like there are some newer techniques to help with hip preservation. Should we be referring to orthopedics early to consider these techniques? I think it really depends on the patient. That's one of those things just really to kind of 
really hone in what that patient needs. Uh, for some younger patients, it's helpful to have some more specific x-rays, some specialized views, really a very specific diagnosis so that they can target whether it's the physical therapy, medications, injections, and kind of try to tailor their treatment specific to that. There's a lot of patients though that will try some physical therapy before they see us, and I think that's a pretty reasonable approach for a lot of people as well. So I think either way, and we're very fortunate in our group that we've got a number of good sports medicine colleagues that are non-surgeons that can really go through a lot of these pathways as well. Perfect, and Steph, um, is PT still beneficial if the patient ultimately goes to surgery? We hear that question a lot from patients themselves, um, and the quick answer is yes. And there's really two reasons. One is because the more fit, the stronger, the more flexible, the more mobile you go into surgery, the better your surgical outcomes will be. And the second thing is responsiveness to therapy is real. <laughs> People can avoid surgery in some situations, and sometimes many situations. And um, that is actually really important to the treatment planning process. When you can sit down with your patient and say, okay, look, physical therapy had some effects, but not enough. Now we need to take on some different treatments, or we need to consider some different treatments. And how long would you say it usually takes for patients to experience the benefit, or how long of a trial of PT should we be giving people? Yes, that's a great question. So um, the, always the answer is, of course, it depends. Um, but sometimes people will feel relief with these posture and movement interventions within a two-week period, so we know we're moving in the right direction, and that really opens up the possibility that physical therapy is going to be the treatment pearl for them. Um, but typically we advise 10 to 12 weeks because that's how long it takes to really make changes in muscular tendinous units to offer people the posture and movement training that they need. Mm -hmm. Great. And then, Cal, what's the recovery time like for this magical hip arthros uh, um, arthroplasty? The arthroplasty, yeah. Well, arthroscopy, arthro you know, it's a very common thing that the, you yeah. know, the words are very similar, so they can get mixed up pretty easily. So uh, hip arthroplasty, hip replacement surgery, um, is really a much quicker recovery than most people think it is. You know, usually it's either done as an outpatient procedure or typically, for most patients, one night in the hospital using a walker really the same day of surgery, walker for a couple weeks, cane for a few weeks. And for most patients, they're walking around about six weeks after surgery when we see them at that six week post-op visit, really with pretty minimal discomfort and occasionally using a cane for long distances, but doing quite well. Great, thank you both so much for coming on the program. Let's finish things off with a key point from each of our presenters, Cal. So if we uh, touch on a couple different things, one is that uh, hip preservation surgery for non-arthritic hip pain for a lot of younger patients can be really effective. Uh, therapy injections and other conservative management really can be helpful for a lot of them as well, um, but that we really shouldn't just blow off a lot of these patients uh, long-term either. Uh, the second one is that hip arthritis is a very common thing that we see. It can be very debilitating for patients. There's a number of good treatment options for that. And really hip uh, replacement surgery is a very definitive, very effective long-term solution for those patients as well. Perfect. And Steph? Yeah, so I would say the key point here is that physical therapy should be the first line of treatment. Whether or not the patient decides to go on to surgery um, with the collaboration and input of their physician, um, can often depend on the results of the physical therapy program. And so it's a really good decision-making tool and you're gonna need the therapy anyway. And so we always advocate for a non-surgical approach first. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, if you have any questions or suggestions for our program, you can use the icon on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast to send those to us. Next week, my guest, Dr. Sarah Ehrman, will be joining me to discuss diagnosing and managing complex pain. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.